Well, greetings. Greetings and welcome to the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. My name is Harold Nickel. This is the only weekly podcast of its kind in the world. Every week, Ren describes the ways to apply all the advantages of Agile, Scrum, SAFE, and she also enlightens us with talk about issues on corporate governance and the world of work based on social science. So it's with this that we report on a couple of articles that pronounced Agile dead. Matthew Ford Kern and another writer who goes by the moniker Miko both posted articles declaring Agile dead. And um, if you're wondering, Miko only has one name, I guess like Sting or, or Cher. Miko writes, so Agile is dead, so it's time to eulogize. I know Agile is dead is not a terribly new idea. I know many others have made this claim, including, and then he names several other writers. Mr. Ford Kern is more direct and a lot more sarcastic when he writes, The meaning of the brand name Agile was lost, the technical merit was diluted, and those looking for technical excellence abandoned the effort and if not for the efforts of true believers, it might be history already. Mr. Ford Kern also describes the end of Agile based on the hype cycle of marketing and management fads. This cycle represents the maturity, adoption, and social application of specific technologies. The hype cycle provides a graphical and conceptual presentation of the maturity emerging technologies have through five different phases. So. I know that Ren will want to invite the writers to contribute guest columns to the website if they are interested. I know Ren always welcomes different points of view and is always interested in other people's ideas, um, even the ones she doesn't particularly agree with. So we'll make that invitation to those two to those two writers. And like always, there will be links up to these articles on her website, which is renmelberg.com. Now, coming up next, our conversation with Ren about outsourcing here on the Guardian podcast. Well, this week during the interview segment with Ren, we discussed the practice of outsourcing. There are plenty of industries where this happens, and it is not a coincidence that IT web development, technical support, and even content and manufacturing are all often outsourced. There are plenty of good reasons to outsource, and most people believe it comes down to economics. Others believe that American workers are at a distinct disadvantage when it comes to cheaper labor in other parts of the world, and that we should adopt tariffs and ways to protect jobs here in the U.S. So, like with so many other issues, we will try to get to the bottom of this one with the Guardian herself, Ren Melberg. And Ren, let's kind of start with the non-economic issues here. A lot of times, certain types of expertise are available via outsourcing that would not be needed in-house on a full-time basis. And that seems reasonable enough, wouldn't you say? Sure, absolutely. And, you know, like a good example is often um, when an organization needs a part prototype or something like that. It doesn't make sense to put together the whole, all the costs and everything and the time it takes 
to do that yourself. You're going to hire someone else to do it for you. And that's a form of outsourcing. And that's one of the things that we'll talk about today is that there are multiple forms of outsourcing. Some work better in certain circumstances than others. And some things that we look out to outsource, we probably shouldn't. So there's some things to, a lot to think about. It's not an easy topic, even though there's one, it's a topic that's filled with a lot of rhetoric on both sides. Absolutely. And along those lines, I think there's lots of times that consultants are asked to take on a project because the people who are in-house just can't deliver it in the time that's required. And that also seems like a pretty good way to leverage limited resources, or or is it? It can be, and that's a really highlights one form of outsourcing, which we often re- refer to as contracting or consulting, and it's where we bring in people at a staff augmentation basis because either our organization doesn't have the knowledge or the organization has a short-term need. Um, and it doesn't make sense to hire someone on full-time. There's a lot of different reasons why an organization would look to stock, stock, so, excuse me, staff augmentation um, in that instance. Um, one of the rules of thumb to keep yourself from getting, well, there's two rules of thumb to keep yourself from getting in trouble in those is, one is this specialized knowledge, um, like intellectual property, uh, information that you're going to need long-term, if it is, don't outsource it. And the other one is, if this is a position that's going to be in your company for 18 months or longer, it's cheaper to hire someone than to do staff augmentation. They've done the economics over and over and over again. It's less expensive to hire the person, have them on for 18 months and pay them severance than it is to have a contractor or staff og person in for that role. So those are kind of two easy ones. And just so you know, sometimes you'll see 12 months is the break-even point. Um, It depends on the role. Um, So your more expensive um, contracting role, say like in your example, a project manager, you're probably going to lean more towards 12 months to be your break-even, where a lower cost, uh, position, say help desk, it's probably going to be closer to 18 months. But you definitely know if you're over 18 months, it's going to be less expensive to hire someone on than um, to bring, you know, in a contractor to do that role. That's interesting that um, that there's that kind of math behind those kind of hiring decisions. Oh, you know, we accountants, you know, as an accountant in a former life, um, we love figuring these things out, (laughs) especially the economics behind it so that we can make really good decisions. That's often, in economics, is the driving decision for staff augmentation more than anything else. It's Sometimes it's time to market, like in your example, we just don't have somebody who can do this right now, and we need someone right now. But more often than not, it is an economic consideration. And what organizations just say is, we don't know if this is a permanent role. So 
So we're not going to bring someone in as an employee. We're going to bring them in as a contractor or some other outsourced position. What they don't think about is where that break-even point is. Warren, would outsourcing certain tasks like HR or legal or even marketing allow a company to concentrate on its core strength, or is that not? Often those are some very successful examples of outsourcing. Um, HR can be a little trickier depending on what you're outsourcing. So very successful examples of that are recruiting, especially um, organizations that are looking to expand their recruiting pool. Um, so, for instance, organizations uh, like STEM organizations, which is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, are trying to recruit more women and uh, people of color. They found that going out to recruiters who specialize in that, they're more successful than when they use their internal recruiters. That's an example. Most organizations of any size and also smaller organizations have outsourced um, parts of HR, like payroll, have outsourced uh, their legal representation, um, and marketing and advertising is often um, almost always outsourced to some degree or another. All of those have been very, very successful. Now, there's other reasons for outsourcing that include purchase of machinery or purchase of other fixed assets that aren't necessary when they're outsourced. Is, is that also something? Sometimes, yes. Um, we're actually seeing an increase in that. So to be honest, um, it's something that we still have to see play out uh, because outsourcing of um, large equipment and major purchases, especially machinery, um, is really increasing. And we're seeing a large increase in the equipment financing industry as a whole over the last few years. And like I said, uh, in the past, it's been very successful, which is why it's growing. Um, if it continues to be successful, is a question mark, and we'll just have to see how that plays out. Well, I think we've covered, you know, some of the reasons why outsourcing might be a good idea. So let's discuss some of the reasons why outsourcing might not be such a good idea. Tell us what, what are some of the hidden dangers of outsourcing that we may not well, I touched on one earlier, which is intellectual property. When we're outsourcing, um, especially um, anything that is really core to our business or close to the core, we have to be very, very careful. We're exposing our intellectual property to people who may or may not have our company's best interests at heart. Also, we don't want that specialized knowledge in the heads of people who don't work for us. That's never a good idea. Um, the risks are incredibly, incredibly high. And we've seen this over and over again in organizations who have outsourced some part or portion of their IT organization, especially the part that works with capital investments. And when they've gone to insource that back in, they've realized that they have a dirge of knowledge in that particular area. So, for instance, they can no longer support their core systems or they have difficulty supporting their core systems because they don't have people who work in their organization who know what's in there and what the code is. Uh, it's one of the easiest 
um, examples, I think. Another one is just the pure economics. Um, often organizations who look to outsourcing are only taking a cost view. They're not taking an economic view. And there is um, a, a long, long list of thought leaders that this drives absolutely crazy <laughs> because you need to look at the total cost. When you outsource a part of your business, there is overhead that needs to be created to manage that. So you need to have vendor management, you need to have procurement, and you always have to have some sort of project or program management overseeing that relationship. And most organizations never take that into account when they are looking at the cost savings for outsourcing. The most frequent error they make as well is the change in the model. So in IT, where the outsourcing gets the greatest amount of press, right? When the people are working for your organization, your IT organization, they are almost always salaried personnel, overwhelmingly salaried personnel. When you outsource that function, they now are hourly personnel. So when the average IT person works 47 hours a week, that's an average, by the way, that includes vacation. So that's a huge problem in itself, but not our topic today. This person works 47 hours a week. And you are paying for 40. When you outsource that role, you're paying for 47. And I can't tell you how many of my clients I've worked with who said, Rin, how come this isn't working? And I just do that simple math for them and it blew away their cost model. I haven't even added the overhead yet. <laughs> yeah. I just did the transferring someone from a salary to an hourly person and all of a sudden their costs dramatically, dramatically increased. And generally what we find, and there's multiple models for this, by the way, is whatever your outsource partner said it's going to cost, add about 20 to 25% on top of that for the extra hours that you're now paying for, that you weren't paying for before, and the overhead costs that you now incurred. That's going to be closer to your the real cost of outsourcing. Um, some IT function in particular. It's interesting, you know, more math for us there. Um, <laughs> that, you know, from listening and from talking to them, that one of the principles of Agile is direct customer contact and frequent customer feedback. It just seems like this kind of arrangement with outsourcing would be hard to manage if all or part of my operation is done someplace else. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, um, it is. And generally what happens when you're outsourcing something like this is a customer interaction isn't between you and your customer anymore. It's between your customer and your outsource partner. And so you have to kind of ask, is that okay with you? And that's why some of the thought leadership is that would not be something you would outsource. 
Because just like you wouldn't want to put someone in between you and your spouse, you don't want to ever put someone in between you and your customer. That example with the spouse, um, that nailed it for me. Um, it's also the same with your customer. I don't think anybody would want you know, feedback going to a contract organization when it's really your, your dollar that's uh, at stake there. Well, and also what happens over time is that your customers develop the relationship with that outsourced partner and not with you anymore. That's also bad. That's also bad. That's very bad because you want their loyalty to be to you. That's right. And I think, too, that you could extrapolate some of that same thinking to testing, product testing, and to quality control, right? Exactly. And there's two things at play when we talk about testing and quality control. One is um, no matter what, and the, and the studies have been done over and over and over and over and over again, third-party organizations are never going to be able to test as well as an internal organization. Never. They've tried and tried and tried, but the knowledge base is not there and the communication base is not there. So we think about this in terms of the, the Scrum model, which I think is the best way to think about this. In Scrum, it's not like project management, right, where development and testing are separate phases and they're totally different people and everything, right? In Scrum, we bring them together on the same team and they're working together and they're developing together and they're testing together continuously. And what happens is that you get a really strong knowledge base and you get a really strong communication channel between the people involved. When we outsource any part of that, whether it's the dev or the QA, that breaks. Well, and I know that you mentioned a few of the costs of outsourcing earlier in our conversation, but what are some of the other costs that are associated with outsourcing that you did not mention to us? There's a lot of ones. The other ones that are harder to really quantify, but they're really important to consider when making outsourcing decisions and also um, as you're monitoring that relationship. Whenever we add another layer or a partner, we're adding risk. And so there's all kinds of risks around security, um, data privacy, um, compliance, regulatory risk. Um, all of those. And even in cases where the outsourced partner is taking ownership and accountability for that, it doesn't really matter that much in the court of public opinion. And there have been multiple organizations that have been burned that way, where their outsourced partner made an error, but the blowback was on the company because the company is the one that had the relationship with the customer. And so that's Part of that, um, extremely difficult to assess, but very important to consider um, costs that you could be incurring is you've got all these extra risks that you really need to think about and be prepared to deal with if something does go wrong in the partnership. Yeah, that's that's a good word. And, you know, speaking of uh, blowback and getting burned, I've read and I'm sure everybody has about IP, intellectual property, that it gets pirated by 
some of these offshore companies. And mm -hmm. you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I really do want to know if I should really worry about my confidential information, my intellectual property. Is it in danger of compromise when I outsource it? Absolutely. Of course it is. I'm not even going to pretend it isn't. Um, <laughs> it absolutely is. And it's kind of funny how um, thought leaders going back to the early 60s have been warning about these things with outsourcing. And it's just now with the advent of piracy um, and different cyber breaches that people are really starting to think about it and take that seriously. I can't stress this enough. I strongly discourage any organization from outsourcing any part of their company that has intellectual property and definitely any part of their company that deals with confidential information, especially private information. Um, so we look at, especially right now, the, the laws in the United States and in Europe around protecting personal identification information are changing and they're getting stricter um, and more demanding. And you don't want to outsource that. I mean, we've seen companies really damaged because of um, different breaches and um, even having to deal with um, their their information being ransomed. Um, and by sharing that information with a third party, you're opening up a whole realm of risk that, trust me, is not, it's not going to be worth it. No, it doesn't sound like it. And along those same lines, it seems like issues of governance and ethics will also likely suffer when work is outsourced. And we've all seen the example of Apple workers in China or child labor used to make garments or, or shoes. So is the risk to a company's reputation worth the same? Well, that's the whole, the whole child and slave labor thing is really kind of fascinating because it only seems to hurt companies that people believe are good companies or ethical companies or progressive companies. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, and there doesn't seem to be a consistency in when it hurts them. For instance, Apple, as you gave the example, has, it's been known for about a decade that they've been exploiting labor laws in other countries to make iPhones and iPads and i everything for pennies. And then they sell them to American consumers for um, markups in the thousands. And that's one of the reasons they're one of the, the most cash-rich companies in the world. Um, and that didn't hurt them for a very long time. But it's very clear in the last couple of years that their reputation has taken a serious hit and they lost customers because of it. We have the famous case of um, uh, Kathy Lee Gifford with Walmart and it pretty much destroyed her business. Then we have Nike where no one has any ethical expectations of Nike, right? And everybody knows, right? And, and it hasn't hurt them one bit. So there is incredible inconsistency when it comes to that from a customer perspective, where it does hurt these companies consistently 
is the penalties imposed on them by the United States, Canada, and European governments um, because they're not very tolerant of the use of slave and child labor. And the, these companies have to ask themselves, is the fine worth, worth it? Um, right now, for a lot of them, it is, but there have been times when the fines were not worth it. Mm. Yeah, it's very tough because um, what I see in your point about Nike is, is well taken, but um, the idea that there's some nine-year-old making uh, $200 sneakers, is uh, that's repulsive to me, and I'm sure it is to a lot of other people. What kind of a fine or punishment could you put together that would cause them to do things differently? Well, and and that's the, the struggle, um, you know, in an era where people are generally anti-government, that they want the government to solve their problems. It's, you know, kind of kind of odd. We've got both both very strong sentiments going on at the same time, and oftentimes by the same people. Um, and these companies are making billions. And to be honest with you, our regulatory environment, and I'm using the big hour, so the Western world's regulatory environment, um, is not up to pace with the size and the scope and the depth of modern corporations. And we've talked before about regulations and how as the market size changed, then who regulated that market changed. When the market was your small community, you and your neighbors regulated it. Mm-hmm. When it became bigger, then it was your county or parish. Then it was your state. Then it had to be the federal government. And, you know, now we're at a place where regulators have no idea what to do. So the answer to your question is no one knows. And I don't think that's going to be one that's solved anytime soon. The only way to make any impact when it comes to ethical behavior with outsourcing is, again, what I said before, it will always go back to the parent customer or company, the one that has a relationship with the customer. And the customers can decide, I don't want to do business with a company that uses child or slave labor, and so I'm not going to buy an Apple anymore or or whatever. We don't have that option, unfortunately, with shoes because there's only one company in the United States that doesn't use child or slave labor for shoes, and that's Red Wing Shoe. Um, <laughs> that doesn't give you a lot of options. If you want to check out Red Wing Shoes um, online, they're mostly work boots. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so sometimes we just don't have options well, right now. Yeah, that's tough. And, you know, with the time we have left, with a less paradoxical question, there's <laughs> there's not often, you know, answers that are all black and white, all one way or the other, but the issue of outsourcing might be the exception. What was Peter Drucker's view of outsourcing and, and what can we all learn from that? Uh, Peter. Um, so Peter Drucker is kind of um, an interesting case because he really has done an incredible amount of work um, or, or did, sorry, uh, a credible amount of work in getting organizations to focus and focus on their core and do something really, really well. And how that was often taken is that companies then outsourced what was considered non-core activities. 
And he had to come back and say, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Um, because so often they were outsourcing things, um, and we've gone through many examples of them that wound up being detrimental to the company because they didn't really understand what was core to their business and what wasn't. Um, the other thing that he started to really propose and, and was a huge proponent of, I should say, um, was taking an economic view on your outsourcing and make sure that you've accounted for all the aspects, those that you can quantify and those that you can't. And he was a big one for saying, have you really, do you have a full holistic view of what the opportunity costs are for doing that? And you better have a really, really strong K um, and before you do it. He really thought that outsourcing um, could be a great tool because it could help you focus. So one of the examples was payroll. Um, a lot of organizations have outsourced payroll to ADP and other organizations like that. And that has been very successful. But he he would ask you then, what happens if your people don't get paid? So make sure you pick someone who can do it really, really well and isn't going to screw up, you know, your company. Um, and make sure that you communicate with them and you have a really good relationship with them, et cetera. Um, so he still really emphasized the importance of having good communications. Um, even when you do outsource. But he was very particular about it because he found that it worked very infrequently. Well, that's a good word. Um, it, you know, like so many things, Ren has a very unique perspective on, on outsourcing that really combines social science with common sense. And both of those are in short supply. For the issue of outsourcing, many of the costs associated with it just aren't in plain view. And for those considering outsourcing, you have more and better information on which to base a decision after today's program. Now, as always, you can read more about this and other issues on Ren's website, which is www.renmelberg.com. Be sure to join us next time for another edition of The Guardian Podcast with Ren Melbourne.